take a network break. In today's show, we still don't have any virtual donuts, but be confident that Drew will return next week because he's the person who brings the virtual donuts. And I am joined this week by Ethan Banks, who's going to help me dig through the sifting pile of jolly news and positive attitudes <laughs> and the excitement <laughs> that is the data networking industry. I brought my shovel, my friend. We will dig into it. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's always interesting what we can scratch up for this show. Sometimes I feel like I'm a chicken scratching around in the dirt. Other times I feel like I'm digging for gold in a gold mine. But there mm-hmm. you go. Uh, and, uh, thanks very much to today's sponsors. We're sponsored by Nokia. SR Linux was built with NetOps in mind and to let you develop your own apps to help you automate network design, provisioning, and deployment. You can find out more at nokia.ly slash SRLinux. That's Nokia, N-O-K-I-A dot L-Y slash SRLinux. And stay tuned after the news for a TextBytes podcast where we look at new features in Palo Alto Network's Prisma Sassy and Prisma SD-WAN, including the digital experience management for home and branch users. New Cloud Blades, which is their applications, new appliances, and their enhanced AI capabilities. And in fact, I've come to learn from this podcast that digital experience mentoring, that ability to monitor what the user's experience is, is probably going to be important for running a distributed working strategy for your business. And of course, if you like the network break, don't hesitate to check out our other podcasts, including Day2 Cloud, IPv6 Buzz, both of which are really in your wheelhouse, especially the IPv6 Buzz, which continues to get legs every single week as IPv6, well, I don't know. We'll talk about it down further in the show. Maybe Maybe the problem is that IPv4 is worth so much money, we can't actually go to IPv6 anymore. <laughs> Let's kick off with uh, Marvell. Marvell uh, put out a press release this week talking about their commitment to Dent for an open source NOS. Now, over the last three or four years, we've seen a number of ASIC makers, Broadcom, Monovium, Mellanox, or now NVIDIA, have all committed to Sonic as an operating system and you could go and buy switches from white box makers and they would provide a supported version of the Sonic operating system for those chipsets. And some of those have flowed through, like Broadcom Sonic comes through Dell with its Sonic distribution and Anovium announced plans to support Sonic on switches on white box that it was doing. But what we're seeing here is that Marvel is leading out with Dent. Now, the first thing was we talked last week about Marvell's announcement about its new Prestera Silicon. That's its campus range of chipsets, or as they call them, 5G Edge. I like to think of them as campus, but you know, either way, <laughs> same, same. 5G and campus switches are the same thing as far as I'm concerned. The press release last week did actually mention Dent, but not enough to make a, to rate a mention. And I think they sort of picked this up. And this press release came out specifically highlighting the fact that they've chosen Dent as a NOS partnership. So if you've got Marvel's white box, they're going to be able to produce a version of the Dent. Dent is, of course, a Linux foundation project. And its key claim to fame is that it takes a different approach inside of the NOS to other open source operating systems of actually binding the network um, ASIC driver into the kernel. In the case right, of as Sonic, in not using an abstraction layer. That's yeah. right. Everybody else uses an abstraction layer and then runs it in user space. And Dent was a spin-off by the people behind Cumulus Linux back in the day. They left when Cumulus Linux moved on. Some of the people then split off and started a new project called Dent that believed that you've got to put the the blob, the proprietary blob that is the ASIC makers piece, the API abstraction, into the kernel, not into the user space because of Oh, the Cumulus Linux tie-in is interesting in in that uh, FRR is, uh, which a lot of the folks from Cumulus Linux are into FRR, will be used in Dent. So it uh, it all comes together now. Got it. Yeah, I don't... 
I mean, FRR is FRR, and what we're seeing is sonic switches or lots of other switches use FRR at some level or another equally, and I think we're seeing, or my perception is that FRR is becoming dominant over other open source routing protocol implementations. Uh, it, it, it is. That is also my take, but um, but it just got easier considering some of the humans that are involved in uh, in what's going on with Dent. Because as I was reading through this and catching up on Dent, I did have the question in my mind of why do I need this, and then I saw the big differentiator seems to be that we're not using an abstraction layer. We're we're talking directly with the silicon and getting everybody involved. So okay, whether it'll have legs over Sonic or not, I, I don't have a sense of that yet. And Dent is still a bit new, but hmm. here's this announcement, Greg, from uh, Marvell saying that they're 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 tying to it. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can take it a step further. I mean, the Linux Foundation has been putting out press releases on a fairly regular basis about you know the next version release. Um, I didn't realize that Dent was actually named after Arthur Dent. From Hitchhiker's Dent Guide. Arthur Dent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, I'm not sure that's a feature or a bug. And I, I'm pretty sure there was no Well, the first, the first release of Dent is Arthur. The second one is going to be Beeblebrox. So <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're getting stuck in on that. Which, yeah. That's good for me. That's now, fine. Obviously, there was no marketing people involved in that decision because Arthur Dent is not exactly a a leadership position in that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're appealing to the nerds. They're, they it are. Is. That's, that's, it that's, is. They're, uh, that's a dog whistle for the engineering community. Yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting one. It's just, it sort of rubs, goes against the flow. Most of the industry is mostly coalesced around Sonic. If you're going to support an open source knowledge, NOS. So the idea that Marvell's going to go against the flow and support Dent, it doesn't mean that Marvell, of course, can't support a range of others, but I think it's interesting just to observe that. Well, the, the question becomes, in my mind anyway, does it get easier to code for Dent? Does it get easier to support Dent than Sonic in some way because of that fundamental architecture shift underneath? And if it does, and if it gets easier to bring new silicon to market and throw the Dent NOS on top of it as opposed to Sonic, somehow the engineering challenges are easier, then Dent gets legs over time as new silicon continues to come to market. If it doesn't, I don't understand how it is otherwise differentiated. And it just feels like, geez, did we need yet another friggin' open source NOS project? Yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, at the moment, uh, it's really just NVIDIA and Marvell who are throwing sort of money at the Dent project at this point in time. And that doesn't feel, uh, as the ASIC makers, so that's Mel you know, NVIDIA, Mellanox, and Marvell with mm -hmm, Prestira, mm -hmm. they're not you know, preeminent chip makers. So Broadcom, of course, um, and Cisco are the preeminent chip makers, really in the market. So it'd be interesting to see if any of the others get up and decide to participate there. Um, and of course, the supply chain issue is probably what drives me to, to raise this issue a little bit because we're seeing product deliveries like uh, talking to people over the last week, the delivery timeframes on any new orders is now out to six months, something we've been highlighting on the network break for a long time uh, and getting worse. And also orders in the system are getting bumped back which probably means someone else is getting the product and you're not, you're being stolen from in the supply chain. Right? In other words, your order is not big enough to matter and somebody else is big enough to matter and your gear is being tossed out. So the question is in my mind, do people either move to the public cloud and start to deploy more projects where in theory there's capacity available on the off-prem cloud? Or do they say, well, we just need a switch. Why don't we go and get a white box switch and start working with that? Or do we delay our projects for a year, you know, six months, maybe a year, maybe two, while we wait for new product to come in or, you know, difficult decision. 
Well, it feels like the hyperscalers are the ones that are going to be the biggest consumer for product like this anyway. I, I know it's positioned mm. for the the 5G edge, but at the, at the same time, it feels like, seriously, who, mm. who in the enterprise side is buying this because of exactly what you said? Why wouldn't I, yeah. at this point, considering supply chain challenges, be like, okay, considering months of lead time just to get hardware in-house, I've got time now to apparently to figure out how I'm going to host this thing in the cloud. So maybe I should be putting my energy there or, because that's a long-term win. Or you should be automating. Maybe you need to get those automation projects off the shelves and go like, I'll automate what I've got. Either start running, you know, if you, if you want to do the finger-defined automation and get your Python and your Napalm and whatever it is that you want to use, go and get that out and start, you know, doing that. Or maybe you go out and buy a product like Glueware where you actually get it. They, they've got a set of libraries that you can start to use on the top of your existing, like a an automation vendor that works on top of a brownfield. There's others, AppNeta and so forth, right? Um, uh, or do you go the whole other way and just go to Whitebox completely? You know, I don't know. There's no one right answer. I Part of the point of Dent, then what they will flag for you on the Linux Foundation uh, hurrah pages about the project is automation. That is, you want to go to a fully automated uh, network operating system or a fully automatable network operating system. Hey, the dense, dense for you. That's why we're here in mm. part. So eh. <laughs> when you get, did Marvell talk, Greg, about lead times in any of the press releases? I didn't no. notice any. I thought maybe you no. caught one. No, they just talk, they just mentioned, you know, in various places, they're partnered with uh, Edge Core Networks, Delta Electronics. Yep. Uh, and Wistron Neweb, someone I've never heard of. Uh, and Dent, of course, is very popular with Amazon. So while Sonic has got Microsoft support as a keynote sort of anchor tenant, Dent is apparently very popular with the Amazon. They they like the approach of mm -hmm. Dent. So maybe both exist. If they've got big enough backers from a couple of key anchor players, then maybe that's the way they 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 mm -hmm. survive. You know. I know the Wistron name for what it's worth. Mm. Um, hey, well, we should move on to the next story, Greg. Azure, DDoS at two-point DDoS protection, uh, where they repelled a 2.4 terabit per second attack, which, uh, reading through this, this was no big deal to them. <laughs> Doesn't seem to have been. I mean, it is a world-class attack, and they claim it to be the biggest. Um, of course, we've seen a number of claims this year of the biggest ever attack, and it seems to go from 1.7, 1.9, 2.1, 2.4, so... Incremental improvements, well done, uh, bad people, you know, to get that little bit of improvement every single time. Uh, now, weirdly, this was still a UDP reflection attack. So one of the key things in the Microsoft post, I was thinking to myself, who could generate 2.4 terabits of attack? And it's still reflection spanning more than 10 minutes with very short-lived bursts, which is interesting in the sense it wasn't a sustained 2.4 terabits per second maintained for days and days and days which we've seen on VoIP services. A couple of weeks ago, we were highlighting that there's been sustained DDoS, DDoS attacks in the sort of the terabit range on VoIP providers. And a lot of the online SIP telephony companies have actually been suffering either full outages or intermittent services trying to handle this. Uh, in this case, they are saying it's a very small short-lived burst. And in total, we monitored three main peaks, the first at 2.4 terabits per second, the second at half a terabit, and a third at 1.7 terabit. That sort of suggests there's something going on here. Like they managed to get a massive burst of traffic and then something went wrong. So either the thing that was generating the reflection attack couldn't generate enough load the second time around, or maybe various mitigations in the wider network by, you know, like the thing about distributing 
handling a, a DDoS attack at that sort of size is you have to distribute it to the edge of the networks. And maybe they're able to mitigate more of it in the telco networks and it never got to Microsoft. Which was my gut exactly when it when it got peaked. That's like that to me. Someone in the middle of the attack was able to detect what was going on and uh, and, and mitigate. Yeah, mm. Mm. and I think a lot of the telcos actually noticed this flow and started chopping it mm. off at the edge of their network. And so the first well, an attack like this, you, you reflection attacks are well known. So I mean, yeah. it's not a it's it's a it's it is a detectable sort of an attack. So it yeah, seems well, logical. Things like manners are going to be helping to stop some of it too. Uh, and stop some of the spoofing that generates the UDP via reflection attacks, which is what makes this more surprising to me is that in theory, a lot of the spoofing should be blocked at the in the core as some of the, you know, in theory, the ISOC committees and so forth have been getting. But I, You used to mention manners and, uh, yeah. you know, and other things that would imply that we're all being well behaved within our ISPs and doing the right thing with our route tables and, and such. And, um, and um, come on, man, you know that's not what's up. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I mean, it is in a lot it's of the bigger shops. They're getting more serious for about grease it. And rubber bands for propulsion. That's, that's pretty <laughs> <laughs> Particularly in the smaller shops where it's either they just don't care or there's a staffing challenge or whatever. They're, they're not yeah. as well-behaved as they might be. Yeah, and but so I think, you know, we've seen, I've seen a number of uh, posts from the, the Manners group and from the, the parts of the ISOC that are actually trying to get the BGP improved. And there's big companies signing on and implementing that, which would perfect this, right? So it yes, should in theory be getting share. harder yes. and harder to actually generate a, that volume of DDoS of a straight up reflection attack because you're removing the spoof source. Yes. So Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Mm. At the same time, the, the 2.4 terabits is a big attack. Yeah, Even right. if Azure as a target was like, yeah, whatever, we can handle, I believe in one of the articles, they said they can handle tens of terabits without yeah. it being a problem. But uh, but but still, that is a lot of traffic, a lot, yeah. a lot of traffic. Well, it's different to the, uh, we talked about another attack in August uh, well, from Cloudflare, and they talked about a 17.2 million requests per second. So there's different types of DDoS attacks. Mm. And the thing to remember here that this is a straight up UDP fear reflection attack, as far as we can tell. Whereas before the Cloudflare actually defected a much more significant attack in my mind. When you're doing... 17.2 million HTTPS requests per second, that's a serious attack. That is really yeah. difficult to mitigate because you can't just block an IP address to filter that out. You actually have to look for something that might be actually be encrypted. So there is that. There's two ways to look at this from the point of view is do off-prem clouds, are they more vulnerable to these attacks? Like they're such big targets. And if you are actually to take them down with a DDoS, if you're a certain type of person, you get headlines. You get It's a bit like, you know, if you're an arsonist who likes having fires, you want to see a big fire? If you're well, a DDoS hacker, do these companies They're a more desirable make... target for what you're mm -hmm. saying, yeah, yeah, because of the visibility. But I think they're less vulnerable simply because of the size of the networks that are being attacked. Not only that, but also um, a lot of these cloud service providers operate their own networks and in theory have very very fine control over what's going on across those pipes. In theory, you know, in theory it's in peanut theory. butter and rubber yeah, bands are also a good way to run the internet, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just highlight this, right? You know, the thing is that if you've got services running on Azure or AWS or Google, right, and people can mount, you know, these two terabit per second class DDoS attacks or million, you know, 17 million requests per second application attacks, you could do collateral damage 
because you're sitting inside of an environment that is such an easy, to, such a big target. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you could take the argument, well, we couldn't defend our uh, self-hosted on-premise network against an attack of that size, but equally you wouldn't be targeted because you're not necessarily yeah. a viable target, right? So right. Right. Uh, the fact that Azure's got a DDoS service that can handle this is not necessarily a feature. It's a result of them being such a massive target that is going to be attacked, not because you're on that service. Well, Greg, one of our sponsors today is Nokia, and sponsor Nokia wants you to know that operating your network isn't enough. You have got to develop for it. We actually did a heavy networking show that uh, I can't remember if it's been released or will be released by the time that this is out, but we, we get into that with them. Traditionally, NetOps teams have managed data center switches with the CLI or vendor apps or third-party tools and, and long-in-the-tooth protocols such as SNMP. Goodness, it's still, SNMP still matters, Greg, sadly. Anyway, <laughs> Nokia builds switches with NetOps in mind. It's SR Linux network operating system in conjunction with Nokia's NetOps development kit lets you create your own apps to help automate network design, provisioning, and deployment. And when that heavy networking show comes out, we talk about exactly that with multiple use cases. It was a super interesting conversation. Yeah. If you are interested in that, you can also use Nokia's Fabric Services System software to automate day zero, day one, and day two, and beyond of your data center Fabric lifecycle. Find out how SR Linux, the NetOps Development Kit, and Fabric Services System can simplify operations in your data center. Go to, here's the URL, nokia.ly slash srlinux. One more time, that's nokia.ly slash srlinux. Linux. A key thing here is their fabric services system is an intent-based, modeling-based approach to network automation in the data center. But you might notice that it didn't mention that once, which I quite like. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an automation uh, tool. The fact that it uses intent and models is just is just yesterday's news in a way. Isn't that weird how things move along? It, but but modeling is just at the at the guts of it all, and it's yeah. so cool. Anyway, and it helps well, us you, get get rid of uh, yeah. SNMP, uh, you know, among other things. Remember when modeling was such a big deal? You abstract a model from the network, and then we thought that was such an amazing thing. And then turns out it's it, just core to the whole way SDN works, really. So yeah, it's like like talking about your socks. Who cares? You need socks. You just wear them. It's all yeah. part of it. It's you not have to uh, have a model not interesting in and of themselves. Yeah. Well, Greg, wiring, uh, wire, wireless exfiltration on on wired Ethernet. We got this interesting story here, and then the the guts of the story is uh, a researcher found out that he could detect radio emissions from a piece of Ethernet wire and you and decode those radio wave emissions. Now, it's not as bad as it sounds because this was special mm -hmm. research, test conditions, and so on. But the big idea is. There is a wire, right, between mm -hmm. um, a host and an Ethernet switch. It does have radio emissions because what is a wire? It is basically an antenna. An antenna, yep. And if you pick up the transmission and do the right magic, you can, in theory, decode what's going on. Now, in this test case, uh, the researchers slowed down the transmissions pretty dramatically and was able to send in, I believe, a UDP packet letters and uh, got it good enough that he could decode those letters as a proof of concept. Yeah. Would this work at real speeds with whole lots of data crossing the wire and so on? N not at this point. Um, I don't think but so. But still, one of those things that we saw, thought was more or less impervious is um, not, potentially. <laughs> There's lots of interesting stuff in this research paper, and it's actually written in more or less plain English. I don't know. Uh, I spent some time reading over it. And a couple of things that happened here is, of course, they're challenging the assumption that an air gap is secure. 
And so the point of the paper was to focus on exfiltration of data from a compromised system. That is, you've got code on the system and you want to exfiltrate something from that target system that you want. And they're using uh, low-cost electronics. In this case, they're using about 30 bucks yeah. worth of equipment and a $1 antenna, which means it can work at about a one-meter range from the cable. Um, and they were able to get the agent to transmit data in such a way that they were able to um, exfiltrate data within one meter of the cable. Now, as a proof of concept, that's pretty good. Uh, the paper also points to things that they could do to improve it, but I didn't get the sense that this is going to send us all racing back to fiber to the desktop, if you remember the back in the days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I think the point here is that for a lot of Cat 5, 5E, 6E, uh, Cat 6A, right? Oh, I learned, by the way, that 6A, do you know the, what the A in 6A stands for? Apparently it stands oh, for augmented. augmented? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I actually did a Cat like, 6A install yeah, Cat 10, 6A, 15 years ago. Cat yeah. 6B, Cat 6C. I just thought it was an identifier, like a release, but anyway. You ever worked with Cat 6A? Yeah, horrible. Huge. <laughs> it's, it's a massive, thing. massive piece of cable because all the twists. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And uh, his point was, is that if you're, and in the paper, they do address that, by the way, uh, pointing out that there is four types of cable. You can have UTP unshielded, UTP foil shielded, unshielded, but foil shielded twisted pairs. And you can have a braided shield and foil shielded twisted pairs. And obviously the signal that gets radiated is different according to each. So if you're building, in theory, if you've got CAT6A with a braided shield, and foil shielded twisted pairs, you probably won't have enough signal, radiated signal. Uh, to be okay, to. good. Well, that was my instinct. If you had yeah. told me the shielded stuff was more vulnerable, I would have been surprised. I assumed it was like, oh, it's got to be the UTP, no, right? The no, unshielded no. stuff is going to radiate the most. Well, the thing and, is that cable, uh, be the most vulnerable. you know, the cheaper the cable that you use, the less shielding that's in it as a rough rule of thumb. So you can get really cheap Cat5, and that's usually unshielded cable with unshielded twisted pairs. And the twisting of the pairs gets you the elimination of the crosstalk. Uh, sometimes what they do is, uh, if you want to go up to Cat Five E, basically what they did was they, uh, this is not entirely true, but they'll do. They have the twisted pairs, uh, but they'll either foil shield the whole cable so that RF can't get in, and or they'll run unshielded but shield each of the twisted pairs so you well, don't that, get crossed. Well, that depends on the spec. I mean, not Five E or, or like base Cat Six, like the mm -hmm. stuff you you could you can get for you know relatively cheap per foot. Um, you know, cat six, you've got more twists per pair. And mm -hmm. then there's the pairs actually twist around each other along a guide um, as you as you scale yeah. up. And then when you get into the, the was a cat seven has got one or two of the pairs of shield that I forget which we've actually got that foil wrap. Yeah, around and then the, you uh, start getting down shields, to different yeah. ratios of twist per pair on different pairs. Exactly. Yeah. All, yeah. Of all of that, again, as you said, to, to reduce that crosstalk. But so, I think the, the to, to me, Greg, the, this story is interesting as a proof of concept, but to actually pull off this attack, you'd need to accomplish two things. One, you'd have to have enough proximity that yeah. you can dial into a specific piece of cable that you want. And in most places, the cable plants are going to be vast. How do you distinguish signal radiating from one cable versus another? So you've got to have proximity to the cable that's got the data you want to exfiltrate. And then once you pull that in, you've got to have an antenna sensitive enough to, to actually get good signal. So you not, not our, not our $30 kit that was used here. And then, and you've got to be able to do wire speed. That was the other thing. He, this proof of concept did not happen at wire speed. It was artificially slowed down. What yeah. they did do though, is they said you could just plug a cable into the ethernet port and not connect it to a switch, but just use it as an antenna to radiate the signal. 
which is uh, interesting. Which so, is which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but if you've got access, I mean, if you've got that much access to an air gapped computer. Well, that's the other piece of this puzzle, right? Is uh, the whole air gap thing. So if you're trying to exfiltrate data from a highly secure installation, how are you ever going to get proximity? Mm. That's a that's a tough challenge for the 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 hacker to deal that with. Is. A big social engineering challenge, very likely. So, as fascinating as this attack is, it doesn't feel like. Fiber to the desktop, baby. It's the only yeah. way. We got to go the there next. Gapping as we know it, it's not that. No, right. and and no. you know we have seen a number of different attacks where they've been able to uh, read the keyboard. Like by listening to the keyboard, they can use a sound to decode which keys you're on. People have been able to point cameras at computer screen and sit and decode what's being written. Or on the screen. get radiation off of like a VGA cable. I yeah. remember back or in the day that was a thing. As well as another yeah. one. Yeah. So these are all good ideas. Actually, it's quite educational just to read it. The, the research paper, as I said, was readable enough and quite re just to think about different aspects of um, how the hackability of this app might actually work in the long run. It was quite fun. Well, Greg, we know that IPv4, there's less and less of it in the world. There's actually none of it. Mm. But somehow we managed to sell 43-8 in the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, Andrew, Andre Tunk, I hope I'm saying your name right, Andre, um, he looks into the sale of 43.0.0.0-8. Um, this was actually owned by, as best as I can tell, by a Japanese professor at a university in Japan who must have been allocated the dresses way back in the deep, dark days of history, you know, in the dark ages of internet time. And it was allocated to him personally rather than an institution or whatever. And instead of selling it for money, he's actually decided to sell it into a uh, development trust, which will use the funds to improve internet structure in the Asia Pacific region. So that's very laudable. Props to you, Professor. Um, and then Andre goes on in the article to speculate that perhaps five to six hundred million was raised through the sale of these addresses, mm. and he look, looks into who bought them and, and the usual but, people. That yeah, yeah, we know who bought them, but we don't know the exact uh, price. But you kind of know the market. The market mm. for IPv4 addresses is pretty well known, and it's been climbing. Andre mentioned in the article not that many years ago it was around twenty-five dollars per IP, and now we're up into the forty dollars per IP mm. range. And so he speculates based on what blocks were sold and how many addresses that is so far, 14 million odd addresses of the 16 plus million in the block have been sold, that uh, the value here, we're talking half a billion dollars. I, I actually think it was a lot addresses. higher. I was talking to yeah? Ed Hawley from IPv6 Buzz podcast. Yeah. And he's saying the current price is more like $45 an IP address. And Ooh. when you're shelling them out in um, slash eights or slash nines like this, not slash eights, they broke it up into... Uh, smaller chunks, they sold a slash nine sla subdivided into eight twelves. Yes. And mm -hmm. then they sold some slash tens and elevens to try and maximize the distribution. And of course, AWS got it. But I think they probably made twice that. I think it was much higher. Uh, AWS got some of that. Yeah. yeah. There, um, Tencent got some, Alibaba got some, I forget who else, but all the, all the usual yeah. players, very well-funded uh, cloud yeah. service providers who have deep but pockets it, got, yeah. got most of this. Notably, everybody got some. Like they didn't sell it as a winner. Yes. They chunked it up. Yes, so yes, yes. Nobody yep. can say, I didn't get it. Yeah, they didn't any. sell the slash eight. Yeah. yeah exactly. I, you can't give it to him without giving it to me. You know, that's sort of corporate. <laughs> that That's what corporates actually say, but they do it with lawyers. Um, well, it's interesting that it was APAC, you know, the APAC region that got this because they're the ones that have needed it the most. They've yes. been out, I think, the longest is yes. when they, they ran out of V4 to allocate uh, before anybody else did. Yeah. Well, especially with China. China really missed out. Um, and really would be deserving of a lot more IP addresses. 
uh, on an equal basis. There's an interesting, it, it leads me to an interesting thing that I've been talking uh, to people about. One of the interesting things here is that if you're sitting on like AWS is now sitting on an intangible IPv4 asset worth about $3 billion at book value. If they were actually to fully adopt and embrace IPv6, they would actually make that $3 billion worthless. And you're in an interesting situation now where does this prevent them from migrating to IPv6 because it would devalue such a significant accounting asset? So the answer to that question is no, because V4 never goes away, is my opinion. So in other words, Amazon... So V6 is, is from this perspective worthless, right? Because yeah. there's so much of it, you're never yep. going to run out, et cetera. All right. So your V4 does have assets. That you'll well, hold do, so, so the question is, is the V4 blocks that AWS owns worth the theoretical $3 billion you've come up with um, actually carried on the books as an asset? That's interesting. <laughs> has you know, to be. That's interesting. has to be. It's an intangible asset. Um, it's something that can be sold. Although arguably, if AWS is selling it, who's buying it? Right. It's an interesting one, right? Because if you think about well, it. Well, back in the day when I would get V4 blocks for whoever, state mm -hmm. government, different companies and so on, you know, a, a PI space that we would be, we would be allocated to when yeah. we pay our yeah. annual rear fees. Um, that, what was that worth? Well, when there was plentiful IP, it was worthless, but it never went on the books as an asset. It was more like it's not significant, an operating but in the volumes, expense, you know? But when you own a slash eight, which is worth $1.5 billion. Right? Yeah, well, that, that's, that, and that's where my, where my brain is spinning on now. You know, yeah. if I had, like I had some slash 16s under my care and feeding back in the day, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was uh, spoiled for wealth to have such so much public address space. Exactly, yeah, yeah. If I, still, if I was still sitting on that today, do I need to carry that as a, an, an asset with value like you would, you know, computer equipment? You do. Because it's not it. a depreciating asset, it's an appreciating asset, well, but it never would have been set up that way just because I went to the rear and got, you know, no, it was I, more like, it was it was not an asset that was on the books at all. Again, it was it was OPEX. It was something I paid point, an annual fee to have. At some point, would realize it as an asset and book it. Like if you're in a, even if you had a slash 16, you're sitting on a half a billion dollars. So if you're a small university in a regional area of Europe or, you know, the US and just happen to be sitting on it, you could actually, you know, some sort of university that runs on 10 million a year. And suddenly you realize you've got a $500 million asset in IPv4 addresses. Yeah, that's significant. But the challenge here, of it, course, it, is it, that it's even sort of like. Ooh, what if a what if a taxing authority figured this out? You have an unrealized capital gain, gain yeah, exactly. in the form of IPv4 that you own. Huh. Yeah. That's horrifying, Greg. Why did you think of this? Don't stop <laughs> thinking about this. And the other one here is, like of course, <laughs> is if somebody like Azure or uh, AWS tried to sell it, who'd buy it? So it's one of those things that as they buy it, they automatically devalue it because they the need it, but does other people? So it's a really interesting kind of I, like an accounting I, I don't think, I, I, going back to your original premise though about the V6 adoption, I don't think V6 adoption devalues the V4 uh, ownership in that even if AWS made all of its services available via, via V6, it doesn't mean they don't need the V4. They still need it. That's never mm. going to go away, I don't think. I think we're stuck with V4 and dual stacking for the foreseeable future, for, the foreseeable for decades future, yes. anyway. Yeah, certainly yeah. for the next 10 to 20 years, for the rest of my professional lifetime. But mm. it's just interesting to, to sit there and go like, oh, yeah, if they actually migrated to IPv6, they'd be actually throwing a $3 billion asset in the bin. 
Now, now, what would be really interesting <laughs> is devaluing it even, you know, companies that need a boost to their their books in some way, and they want to add an intangible capital asset because it makes their books look better. Are they going to start looking at their V four and then <laughs> saying, "Yeah, we're our company's worth this much because we own these assets"? It's it, it's because if they never would have done that before, they wouldn't have. But the market has changed so much that now Same you could actually do names. that. If you're yeah. sitting on certain domain names, you have to book them as an intangible asset. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, if you've got a four-letter domain name or something like McKinsey.com or, you know, whatever, they are actually assets in their own right. They've got a saleable value whether you, you know, you can sell them off to a scammer for sufficient money even if the company collapsed tomorrow and went into receivership, still worth money to somebody. So definitely. Our final topic for today is uh, about consumer VPNs. There's an article here. Uh, from uh, a company that I didn't really, just popped up, uh, restoreprivacy.com. And I, I tried to check up on the source of this website and I've got questions, if that makes sense, about- Me, me too. It uh, was still, it was an interesting piece. I don't know who Restore Privacy is either, but yeah. yeah. So I just wonder if there's an agenda being run here and maybe this is a bit of a beat up, but notwithstanding- I Dude, the article was really well written and pretty thoroughly researched to bring yeah. all the connections. So, so, so the title of this article, former malware distributor Cape Technologies, Cape, uh, K-A-P-E, now owns ExpressVPN, CyberGhost, Private Internet Access, Zen made in a collection of VPN review websites. And the thrust of this is to talk about who Cape Technologies is, their history as Crossrider, which was an ad tech company that got heavily into delivering ads via malware. They were really nasty about how they did their business. Well, now this company rebranded their cape and they've been buying up uh, privacy related um, companies, ExpressVPN, CyberGhost, et cetera. So some of these VPN companies that you've heard of, if you've been on YouTube for five minutes, you've probably heard of some of these, especially ExpressVPN. And then also doing the, the scumbaggy kind of technique of buying a VPN review site and then pumping their own products <laughs> that they own under the corporate umbrella high in the review. Yay. Thank yeah. you for that. Well, apparently the but, person but the, behind it, this article claims that this person is an Israeli billionaire who previously spent mm. time in jail for insider training and then went on to earn yeah. much of his wealth from a gambling company called Playtech, which was dodgy company, quite dodgy, and then acquired Cape Technologies in 2012 before leading it to be a major player in the malware and ad adware industry. So, and now he's running a VPN. It's not the fact that he's collected together a number of VPN brands, but he also has bought or built a number of review websites for VPNs that point to his products, which is all a but bit, you, it, yeah. it, it all, it is all a bit dodgy. And yeah. the question for me, if you're a privacy minded individual, that is one of the major drivers for using a VPN service. Okay. So now uh, someone who's all about abusing your privacy and using your data to, in the past anyway, deliver ads to you, now owns these various VPN companies yeah. and is manipulating the quote unquote review websites <laughs> to put those products at the top. That does not make me want to use those products. Like I would never, no. knowing the background and the history of uh, Cape Technologies going back through to Crossrider, want to use ExpressVPN or CyberGhost or Now PIA, this is interesting in the sense cetera. that we've seen Apple recently announce that they're basically building a VPN product into their latest version of iOS 15 and will eventually come to macOS when you just tick a button and all of your browsing will go through their VPN to be anonymized, right? Yeah, it's sort of a, it's not a VPN as such. It's, it's more like a proxy, but yeah. yeah. Um, well, and, and they're doing VPNs a similar kind of a service and with the purpose. And it's, I just wonder if that's a reaction to this, right? In the sense that if, and the other thing too, is that a lot of these VPN companies are pretty dodgy and they're 
various reputations for stealing uh, Bitcoin, you know, cryptocurrencies because they're all your traffic flows. What? That, and, and what? It, and often no. they actually decode your SSL termination here and they can see everything that's going through. So they can actually inject ads, they can inject malware and stuff. So anyway, the point of raising this here is there's a there's a, at least one dodgy actor in the consumer VPN market. Uh, if there's one, there's probably more. There's a lot of free Which money. Which gets to- down to understanding for whatever software you're using, whether personal or enterprise, what do you really know about them? So supply chain stuff that's come up for recently, Greg, for example. Yeah. Do you know who all is in your supply chain? Um, the, <laughs> we, have, we didn't say solar winds, but you know, um, yeah. they were victimized by, by this. When can you trust your vendor? Because it may not be the vendor itself, but who your vendor uses to deliver product Absolutely. to you that you have to have questions it's, about. It's really, anyway, the consumer VPN thing, we don't generally need them now that HTTPS is here, unless you're going to deal with, unless you want to do something like watch American streaming services from overseas. Um, and, but if you do, there's a fair bet that you're going to be in real, there's, that you are at some risk here. Uh, and I just wanted to mention that in case you're thinking of using mm. these third-party VPN services or low-grade consumer VPNs, uh, understand do, that you're Do your homework and know do the history. Homework. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. on that note, thanks very much. Thanks for joining me again this week, Ethan. It's been a pleasure to actually do this. It's been quite fun. Go back to our roots, just you and me banging over some articles in the in the internet. <laughs> uh, yeah. Drew will be back next week. I believe that he's had a great break. I don't know. I'll find out when I see him on Monday. Stick around for our Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks on what's new in Prisma SD-WAN and Prisma SASE. That's coming up right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we look at new features in Palo Alto Networks Prisma SASE and Prisma SD-WAN, including new digital experience management for home and branch users, new cloud blades, a new appliance, and enhanced AI ops capabilities. Our guest is Rohan Grove. He is Senior Director of Product Management at Palo Alto Networks. Uh, Rohan, welcome back to the podcast. So let's jump right in and talk about Autonomous Digital Experience Management, or ADEM. That's a mouthful. What is it, and how have you expanded it in this new release? Firstly, thank you for having me back. Uh, super excited to talk about these features. So starting with Autonomous Digital Experience Management, or ADEM for short. Uh, so this is a new category of product that we've introduced. And the reason this product portfolio exists is really to address the, the hybrid workforce scenario. Right? I mean, 18 months ago, most organizations were managing you know, a few dozen hundred branches. Palo Alto IT is a prime example. We had 80 branch offices. And suddenly from 80 branch offices, the IT teams had to manage branches of one, 10,000 users, which is 10,000 employees, of course. And we didn't have any tools, honestly. IT does not have tools to go monitor people's home offices and see if the Wi-Fi connection works well. Why is Zoom not working? So the ADEM product is essentially a deep visibility and observability tool that lets IT teams understand the user and application experience for everyone, regardless of where they're from, where they're working from. So whether you're working from home and you're having issues with Zoom, or you know two days a week you come back to the office and you're working from the branch, these capabilities basically allow IT to pinpoint where issues might be and then help troubleshoot them. And with Prisma SD-WAN 5.6 release, we've added ADEM capabilities into our SD-WAN appliances. We previously only had them for mobile users that are using VPN clients. We've extended that to the entire enterprise. 
So this means if I've got uh, users coming back to the branch and I want to get a sense of performance, I've got additional visibility into their individual performance as opposed to just you know what I would get from the SD-WAN device, which is already giving me some basic path metrics. Correct. So we um, go beyond just path metrics. We can do hop by hop visibility metrics. Uh, and also in the branch, you have uh, people other than users, right? You have things, you have IoT devices, you have camera systems. So we can actually measure performance of all of these IoT things, as well as the users that are sitting in the branch. And this is a great time to introduce the branch appliance-based ADEM because uh, like we were talking before the podcast, like I'm personally coming into the office three days a week, and I'm sure a lot of people are doing the same. Okay, so you did mention there's a new appliance for the SD-WAN, that's the uh, ION 1200, and what's new about this? Yeah, so given that the branch is back in many ways, we thought this is a good time to come up with a brand new appliance, which is fully integrated with 5G. Now, 5G has been a has been a big buzzword in the industry for a while, uh, but there's really not been a tightly integrated 5G appliance that has SD-WAN and SASE capabilities. So the mm. ION 1200 is kind of filling that gap. So it has native 5G capabilities and for use cases like retail um, or ATMs, kiosks that may not always have the best uh, uh, connectivity and ATMs, by the way, are getting more and more bandwidth requirements, right? There are video ATMs that require, you know, more bandwidth than before. Uh, so the 5G capable SD-WAN appliance, the ION 1200 really fills that gap. That's really interesting that uh, we've seen 5G connectivity, WAN connectivity go from a niche specialist requirement. And there were companies that built their entire uh, business around delivering 5G connectivity to companies so now it's just a built into a standard appliance from from your SD WAN vendor. Is there really that much demand? Is it just something that everybody wants, or is it this is something that just a few customers want? So I think today it's probably three or four verticals, but these are key verticals. Um, as I said, kiosks, ATMs, and all of these are popping up all over the place. And when you have a pop up kiosk, you're not necessarily going to have wired connectivity, and mm-hmm. and four G, and honestly, leaves a lot to be desired. 5G with the promise of much higher speeds, and we are talking like reliable connectivity of 300 Mbps or more, should fill that gap. The other use case I'd say is the you know the the big malls that have retail outlets. They don't want to be dependent on the mall operators' connectivity, and they'd like to be independent of that. And 5G gives them the capability to have primary or backup connectivity independent of the larger kind of the mall scenario. Yeah, that makes sense. One. Yeah, because the malls like to charge a premium for bringing the telco service in or you have to pay them a fee to have access to, to telco services. And this allows you, but it also allows you to do a pop-up store inside of a mall and right. require nothing. Um, the other thing that you made a point of is something that we haven't covered before is that 3G and 4G is a subset of 5G. So once you have a 5G connection, you can just, it'll downstep to whatever part of the standard. In fact, 5G is the same as 4G. It's just a few more standards banged on and then relabeled really, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's the nice part about the ION 1200, that while it'll operate at 5G, wherever it has the 5G signal, it can down-select to 4G or even 3G uh, in yeah. areas where you may not have the best 5G coverage. Now, can I also do a wired connection, a, a broadband connection on this device as well, or am I just doing mobile data? No, that's a great point. So this box has uh, WAN interfaces, of course, as well. It is, it is an SD-WAN appliance. So we can do active-active path selection on 5G and WAN interfaces, and that's a key differentiator for us, right? So 
Uh, a lot of vendors have cellular WAN appliances, but they can't really do active-active on the cellular WAN and the WAN interface. So we can do active-active on both. And that gives the flexibility that uh, IT teams are looking for. Okay. Or could I use it as a backup because having that 5G running constantly could get expensive? Yeah, absolutely. So 5G is likely to be a backup uh, for a for a few verticals, but we absolutely think that there is potential for 5G to be the primary WAN interface. And that's going to create a whole new set of use cases, I think. And we're super excited about that possibility. And have you certified any particular carriers here in the US for uh, their 5G networks? Yes, yeah, so we're working with all the major carriers worldwide. The nice thing about the ION 1200 is that it's a single SKU that can be used anywhere in the world because we have adjusted for all the different 5G spectrums. And uh, we've been certified already uh, by AT&T, which is obviously the largest uh, service provider in the United States. And we're working on certifications with all the other usual suspects. And uh, this box is uh, going to ship at the end of the month. So we are mm. about four weeks before it's uh, available to be ordered worldwide. So by that time, we'll have a whole bunch of carrier certifications. And the interesting part about this is you can actually put the autonomous digital experience managing into this box. So you can monitor the 5G connection using the ADEM features that you're now rolling into the appliances. So if you're thinking to yourself, uh, 5G doesn't work, you can actually run synthetic transactions directly from the box over the 5G to assure yourself that it's working one way or the other. Like, is it broken? Can you validate that? Or is it actually working and say, and prove that? That's an excellent point, uh, Greg. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the whole point of ADAM is to do the segment wise insight. So if there's a problem uh, with the, on the carrier side, it'll actually pinpoint and say uh, the experience is bad because there's a issue with a particular hop on the carrier network, or it could be mm. something else. For me, it's just that sometimes people say to me, oh, 5G can't possibly be used for, is better, can't be better than MPLS or whatever. And in fact, we have heard from people that 5G is better than MPLS. And in some cases they said, we can't get MPLS, so 5G is better than MPLS. But in other cases, they've said 5G just performs more reliably and faster and low latency than MPLS, and that's why we just use it. And, and the tip for people who are listening is, if you want to use 5G, uh, talk to somebody who can sell you minutes by the thousands. So instead of buying one 5G SIM card and trying to find a plan, talk to a company that can aggregate it into a massive billing and you can have a thousand SIMs with you know, a million minutes a month or whatever you need to run your business. That's how you make this work. Yeah, and since you brought up the SIM things, the nice thing about the ION 1200 is that it is dual SIM enabled. So you can actually have two different SIMs from two different providers it gives you the ability to to really uh, choose the best carrier for you, and uh, as Ooh. you said, Greg, ne negotiate rates because you can kind of mix and match between <laughs> the carriers. You've got some negotiating power going on there. <laughs> well, now, what about cloud blades? One of the things that we've seen uh, Prisma platform, the S Prisma SD WAN platform, is this is the cloud blade platforms. So, can you remind us what they are, and then let's dive into what the new releases are. So, cloud blades is a term that we use to describe our uh, API abstraction layer, which facilitates third-party integrations. So CloudBlades was originally conceived by the CloudGenix team, which is now Prisma mm -hmm. SD-WAN. But we've we have expanded that concept and CloudBlades as a platform on our Prisma SASE uh, solution. And mm -hmm. it's really a nice, cool way of integrating with third parties. CloudBlades are essentially containers that have API integrations built in. You can have a cloud blade for an AWS connectivity, or you can have a cloud blade for 
uh, a chat ops connectivity. And these can be independently installed, upgraded, downgraded without impacting the main solution. I think of it right. as an application on your phone, right? You can download whatever you want, does not impact the phone's ability to make phone calls with, uh, or other things. So I can't think nice. of them as a container. Yep. You've got this SASE platform and then I can instantiate a container with these apps inside yes. that do integrations with Zoom or Microsoft Teams or ServiceNow in this case. Yeah, and those are the three new uh, integrations that we've announced as part of the SD-WAN 5.6 launch. Uh, and all of those three are super relevant applications that all of us are using, using today, right? Zoom is probably, Zoom has become a, a verb and a noun in the last 18 months. So, um, yeah. no, this the, the integration with Zoom really lets IT administrators figure out based on a Zoom meeting ID, what the user experience was. So we actually integrate directly with Zoom. Zoom gives us the meeting ID and the network and QoS statistics for that meeting. We correlate okay. that with kind of what we are seeing from a networking side, from a branch side. And that really gives administrators great insights into what happened to a particular Zoom meeting, you know, good, bad, things like that. And I think that insight can be useful because if, you know, there's poor video or call quality, of course, they're going to blame the network, but you're saying you can get more insights to actually figure out what it really was. Absolutely. And you can actually uh, slice and dice that. Like, was it bad audio quality or was it bad video quality or both? So it's in, it's it's amazing, like the power of APIs and and how this uh, exchange of APIs can can tie both of these things together, collaboration and and branch networking. And that can be useful because Zoom is becoming an essential business tool. But for a lot of IT shops, it's also kind of a black box. You just get the service and you get what you get. Correct. Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be interested to understand how ADEM, you know, this this digital experience mentoring and this cloud blade works together because this is. One is actually pulling stats, if I understand this right, directly from the Zoom call itself and saying, I can see that Zoom is telling me that this call is going well or bad or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, I've got the digital experience management tool, which is much more general purpose. But so there must be a separation there. There must be a difference between the two. Or is it too much information almost? Um, no, I think they're approaching it in different ways, right? So uh, the Zoom cloud blade depends on the actual real Zoom calls and Zoom traffic that was going on and it's providing you information on on kind of the past, right? What yeah. happened on the call, you know, what was good, what was bad. The ADEM, uh, when you configure ADEM to monitor Zoom, it's actually sending synthetic traffic and it's potentially trying to predict the future that, hey, uh, I'm sending synthetic traffic to the Zoom application and it seems like things will look good, right? And that gives you an indication like, yeah, this today, this morning, uh, Zoom will behave well because I've run synthetic traffic from all my branches, from all my users, and it seems to be working fine. Right? So they're looking at it in different mm. views of, you know, predicting what could happen in the future and then analyzing what happened in the past, depending on what you're yeah. using. Okay, I get that. So if I'm operational and I'm on the help desk, I get a report from somebody, I might look at I might look at the, the ADEM experience for the whole network. So the Prisma... ADEM tool tells me, ah, this is the experience from the device. But I guess I could also look at the experience from the user edge device, so the laptop or the phone, which also right. has the, the agent installed. And then I could also, if I knew that there was something specific with Zoom, which doesn't necessarily run on the same infrastructure, or if you want to get to be able to point the finger a little bit more accurately and do root cause, then you're now able to say, well, like the Zoom call was a problem and I can put all of that together. You can. And 
you know, the flow metrics that we collect on the SD-WAN appliance can actually point out that, hey, uh, this is an issue with Zoom and this is not a network issue. And we can send all those logs uh, to your Zoom uh, vendor and tell them, you know, you got to solve this. So where does that lead into AI ops? Because we're seeing a lot of push around um, automating a lot of this. Now that we've actually got all this data, in a weird kind of a way, we're making another problem about how do we handle it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, totally, completely agree. Um, AI ops, so it's ex- it's exactly what you said, right? Like sometimes we have too much data, right? There's too many things happening. There's too many alerts, too many systems that are trying to you know, tell the user something is wrong. And then it just leads to alert fatigue. And the, yeah. and the IT admin has no clue what's a real alert and what's a real issue. It's it's never been an issue about not having alerts. It's always been too many alerts. So AI mm-hmm. ops kind of evolved from, hey, can we filter out the noise? Can we really look at everything that's going on, start doing correlation? So first thing you need to correlate the alerts, like are these 10 alerts actually pointing me to the same problem? And then is alert A correlated to alert B? Once you figure that out, then you need to find out causation. Was alert A caused by alert B or was alert B caused by alert A? Those are very mm-hmm. complicated things to do. Like that's where machine learning and artificial intelligence comes in. And the system has to figure this out over time. And we've been dabbling in AI ops um, for a couple of years now. We had our first release of AI ops about a year ago. We're continuously innovating. Like this is not a one release mm-hmm. thing, right? Um, right. AI by definition is a in a supervised uh, learning capability. And the more the system learns, the more it actually figures out that, okay, I've seen this alert before. It was caused by X problem and this looks similar to that. So you look at all these sequences, you look at the patterns and then you can recognize the patterns. So a, a lot of our audience is probably going to roll their eyes when they hear about AI ops and am I like, yeah, yeah, everybody's talking about that. But you're, uh, it sounds like you're taking care to introduce it slowly to let people get comfortable with it, to actually validate it themselves that it's actually delivering value to them as opposed to just some marketing language. Yeah, and because we have, you know, many, many customers, our our product is a SaaS product. We roll out these capabilities uh, in our cloud. And, you know, once we have a release like 5.6 was rolled out last week, customers who logged in on Monday, last Monday, automatically see all these new capabilities, right? They don't have to do anything on their SD-WAN appliances, no firmware upgrade required, nothing required. They just inherit these capabilities because it's delivered from the cloud. And because of this, you know, they can start looking at these new AI ops things and see, hey, the system is telling me some interesting things. And over time, they can start adopting this. And because we are looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands of branches across the world, uh, we can literally start correlating and say, this is specific to this vertical for finance, or this particular alerts may be specific to the retail vertical and start giving customized suggestions to users uh, on, on vertical basis as well. Well, that does wrap up our time. Uh, Rohan, thanks for joining us. If folks want to learn more, where would you send them? Okay, so firstly, I just want to say that uh, we are really happy that Gartner picked Prisma SD-WAN as a leading vendor in their magic quadrant. But Prisma SD-WAN is just one part of our bigger Prisma SASE solution, right? And we have tightly integrated Prisma SD-WAN with our Prisma Access Cloud Security solution. We had the industry's first SASE conference a couple of days ago. And I would very much encourage folks to go check out SASE Converge. You can view the the awesome um, recordings at your own time and really get a holistic view, not just of Prisma SD-WAN, but of the larger Prisma SASE solution and we really appreciate uh, having me on the podcast today. 
All right, so that's sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. If you want to go look at it for yourself, we'll also have that link in the show notes, sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. Uh, thanks, Rohan, for joining us. Thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.